0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: I mean, they were there for all sorts of reasons. Some was romance, some was escaping having to take the transports to Germany to work. Some was the idea that this was a place of clean living, the high, pure mountain air, not the um, the exigencies and compromises you had to make with the Germans. There was a whole mixture of motives.
2: That was Paddy Ashdown talking about the factors that led French people to join up with the country's resistance movement in the Second World War. Talk
0: about the concrete and people might think, well, that doesn't sound terribly enticing but but it, it's done with great panache here i think yeah. i think sydney little was a very clever man
2: and that was Catherine ferry discussing the history of a british seaside town hello and welcome to the history extra podcast my name is rob attar and i'm the editor of bbc history magazine which is britain's best-selling history magazine you can find us in all good news agents or take out a subscription from anywhere in the world Head to HistoryExtra.com forward slash subscribe for our latest subscription offers. And you can also get hold of digital editions of the magazine for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of those, head to HistoryExtra.com forward slash digital. D-Day is one of the most famous events of the Second World War. Yet the actions of members of the French Resistance in the months and years beforehand are less well known outside of France. In his new book, The Cruel Victory, former Liberal Democrat leader Paddy Ashdown explores their story, focusing particularly on the Maquis de Vercors, a rural group of French resistance fighters who converged on the Vercors plateau in southeast France. Our book's editor Matt Elton met up with Paddy in his Somerset home to find out more. I'm afraid there may be a bit of background noise in the early parts of this interview, but I do hope you'll persevere because it is a fascinating discussion. Why do you think
1: people signed up for the resistance? I think there is a lot of misunderstanding about this. I mean, I think there were some genuine resistors. They were all genuine resistors at the end and gave their lives for it. Mm -hmm. Um, The people who started this were... The extraordinary thing is that the idea of the Vercors as a centre of resistance, a place of refuge in which the shattered elements of broken France... Could find um, retreat. Um, and that was quite old. And um, you know, it's not, it's not, I think, insignificant that when the Alsaciens were driven out of Alsace-Lorraine, when the Poles were driven out of Paris, mm-hmm. they went to the Vercors. Yeah. But quite suddenly, at the same time in 1941, 42, um, 41 really, um, three groups of people, absolutely different. Mm. One intellectual France, two great writers, arguably France's greatest young writer of the day, and another great writer, together with a few miles away, but separately and unknown to them. The defeated army, after the army of the armistice was was disbanded, um, and then a group of socialists in a working class cafe in Grenoble all had, at pretty well the same time, the same idea. Let's create a place which we could, when the hour of liberation comes, we could hold as a fortress for the Allies to fly in. Yeah. Um, so I think their views were all about liberation. They were the, the role that the Verkhov would play in liberation. But I think it's really important to understand that um, without the young men, this would never have happened. It would just have been a sort of middle-aged man's dream. Um, The young men who were suddenly conscripted into the Service Travail Obligatoire, the STO, the compulsory work in in Germany, uh, by Sauckel and Laval, um, went there as a a place not to have to go to Germany Mm. and found themselves there for... I mean, they were there for all sorts of reasons. Some was romance, some was escaping having to take the transports to Germany to work... Some was the idea that this was a place of clean living, the high pure mountain air, not the um, the exigencies and compromises you had to make with the Germans. There was a whole mixture of motives. But what I think is fascinating, and that's why I spent quite a lot of time um, in the build-up, is to see that these three, four disparate elements all came together, uncomfortably sometimes... (laughs) The young men became hardened, muscular, makisar, walking over the mountains, committed to the cause. The others came together, set aside their political differences, or largely did, in order to take on the Germans. So it was the way that... Different motives were coagulated into a single aim, by the act of German oppression and occupation.
3: Was there a single act of that occupation and repression that you feel helped make the resistance a genuinely popular one?
1: (laughs) Estir, Serius Travista, Travatois obligatoire. The German ambassador in Paris says, and I quote him in the book, you know, when when the memorials are put up to the the French resistance, one should go to S-Saukel, the German Minister of Labour, because it was his insistence on youth being sent to Germany um, which drove the young men up onto the mountains.
3: And you talked about the idealistic um, impression of what life was like there. Do we get a sense of what actual the reality of, of daily life was like in these camps and then when the camps had to disband I suppose.
1: Yeah, uh, well, the camps never did disband except when the Germans came. Um, yes. but, and then they were forced to, of course. Yeah, I mean I think the particularly the winter of 1941-42, which was a very, very hard winter, uh, suddenly the romance of you know going up to the place you'd have summer holidays for the summer sounded fun. Mm. Helping in the harvests, you know, the pretty girls about that was also fun. But the bitter, bitter cold and misery of the forty-one, forty-two 42 winter, which is a very, very hard winter, in which they were holed up in small mountain refuges, I think that must have been very, very hard. And about half of them, about half of the young men who went up there for refuge returned to the valley because they simply simply couldn't put up with it. Mm. Everything that they got, every drop of water, every log of wood they had to go out and cut for themselves, must have been very tough for them. Yes, yes. And
3: you have touched on this, um, the sense of there being some divide between the military... Oh, not some
1: divide, a very, very big divide. I mean, it was this in the end that... um, I mean, inevitably, in those things, personalities count. Um, the particular personality of the patron, Eugène Chavon, uh, and Alain Luray, uh, the early military commander, they, they got on very well together. But then there was, and it was much more typical of the French military, uh, Narcisse. I also <laughs> often think that uh, it's a, a very appropriate Narcissus. Yes. um Pompous, arrogant, small of stature, a cavalryman, believed in... Uh, He went to war under the royalist standard, um, although, of course, France was a republic, but right-wing, conservative, and the primary civil organisations, which were socialist, Masonic, Masonic being left-wing in France, um, there was a very sharp divide. And it was the divide which I think also is reflected in the French constitution. Who commands the military? And in France, there's always been some opaqueness about that. Is the military under civil command or not? And you think of De Gaulle, you think of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, the new France... And, and here's the big thing that comes out of the book, in my view. Actually, what they were fighting for were two things. One is, how do we get rid of the Germans? But two is, what is the nature of the new France for the mergers after the shame? The army wanted to keep France as it was. Hierarchical, Catholic, essentially right-wing, quite wooden and, 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 and la gloire. Mm-hmm. The, the socialists, um, who ran the civil uh, um, operation, wanted to have a new France, much more in tune with the the, um, the tenets of the revolution, and that was a very severe, um, yeah. a very severe dividing line. It didn't wreck them in the end; it worked out, but it certainly created huge internal tensions. Mm.
3: And talking of tensions, do we get a sense of the tensions between the French and the British? Um, in terms of the run-up to
1: D-Day, actually only small glimpses I have to say in this. Um, I and mean, then one of the, fa- the two fascinating characters in this, from the British point of view, one is the fabulous, glorious, um, fabulously beautiful, fabulously courageous, fabulously promiscuous um, Christine Granville, Christine Skarbek, the Countess Skarbek, Polish Countess, um, who was dropped in to be the courier, and indeed makes love mm. um, with. The greatest SOE agent, Francis Kamertz, uh, by the way, I'll probably be, my next book will be on him, a oh, oh. uh, fabulous man, yeah. um, on the very first day she arrives, on the very first day they meet, I mean, they didn't hang about. <laughs> they were at the time being shelled by the Germans and bombed, I suppose that pushes things along a bit. Um, <laughs> and, um, and through Francis Kamertz's messages home, you suddenly begin to understand that there was, he talks about a growing mood of anglophobia because of the failure of D-Day to be delivered in forty-two. it is forty-three. everybody thought D-Day was coming in 1943 yeah. and the delay caused all the problems but what is interesting to me is that there is no hint of it anywhere from anywhere else and the two SOE people dropped in bizarrely Long and Housing, I think they were wholly unsuitable one of them couldn't even speak French and who left under some cloud of suspicion. When an inquiry was held into them, the French went out of their way, never to badmouth them. Mm. So if there was a, um, an underlying um, tension, it, it isn't, it's subliminal. I'm not seeing the book in my view. What I think is amazing, though, is that you know here's this, this little country, we think it's a little country, and suddenly the whole of France is depending on us for liberation. Yeah. It's British Halifax bombers that yes. suddenly appear overhead to drop them the arms. You, know, you get the sense of the last great flowering of a genuinely world power. Mm. Um, And this is the last moment for it, I suppose.
3: Wow. I mean, in terms of that aid, um, how much did Churchill's decisions to drop these kind of packages influence the course of of the events?
1: Well, I think it did. I mean, I think it made people's dreams a reality. Um, I don't say that it it added to the, the cause of the resistance, it may have done because people suddenly realized that Britain really was backing him But Churchill, you know, he was said to be the, the famous word, he, he was said to be starry eyed about spies and SOE operations and the underground. Um, he was also very canny politically. He wanted the whole argument was centered in why the vehicle is so important is do we attack, this is the second attack on, on, on France after D Day from the, from the south, or is it Churchill's plan, what he called the soft underbelly? You know? And that would have been across the Italian passes and into France. Far better way of doing it, by the way. Um, and Churchill suddenly realised that all the aid he'd been putting into the Balkans, because mm-hmm. he originally wanted to go out to Bulgaria through the Balkans, was going to be irrelevant because France was going to be the next field of battle. Right. And he shifts the whole huge cornucopia of arms going into Tito, and dumps it into the Alps and primarily into the Vercors. In that sense, it made the dreams a reality, and it gave people a sense that you know this was def- definitely going to happen.
3: Okay, talking about the months up until May 1944, I suppose, what do you think was the biggest strategic failing?
1: Muddle. Mm. I mean, I I don't suppose we can... You know, you need to put yourself in the historical context before you stand back and condemn. But there was a fantastic degree of muddle um, in unclear lines of communication, unclear thinking. I think it's because... I think it's because the whole French resistance operation had been going for two years. It had a momentum of its own. Um, and it suddenly, it was the only thing that mattered. It was the only way of hitting back. And suddenly we're about to do D-Day. And D-Day is the mega operation upon which everything depends. It's an entirely military operation. There was a resistance side to it, but pretty well entirely military operation. So all the effort goes into D-Day. And there's this sort of orphan sculling around saying, what do we do with these people? <laughs> yes. The answer was, they came up with a very good plan. Um, So I don't think it was tied in properly. So let's just go through the mistakes. Um, One was muddle. Um, Let's take a look at Eisenhower. On the famous two days before D-Day, Eisenhower says, tout le monde à la bataille, the famous words of Foch. The original plan was to get the resistance in the north of France to rise, but keep the resistance in the south of France, in places like the Vercourt, undercover, to be used in the course of the southern landing. When one of the agents dropped into the vehicle, came back and said, if you do that, the French, the Germans will know you're only going to land in the north. The Germans were convinced there was going to be a pretty well simultaneous landing in the south, and originally that was what was planned. And so they took, Eisenhower took this decision, which cost thousands of French lives, no question about it, to make the whole of the resistance and the whole of France rise, when it was far, vastly premature for those in the south. On the other hand, in my view, that was an entirely right mili- military decision. Tough, but right. D-Day was very close around it. I don't think sometimes we understand how close. And I think that um, if I had been Eisenhower, I would have made that decision. Churchill, I think, is constantly trying to undermine the Southern Landing, constantly trying to change the plan, co- constantly rebuffed by Roosevelt. I think he created a degree of uncertainty about how the Vercor might be used which I think he's responsible, but I understand what he was trying to do. De Gaulle was wholly different. De Gaulle had a plan. He he was desperate to make sure that France would play a part in her own liberation. He did not want to be a subset of either an American invasion in the north or a British invasion in the south. So he had this plan. It was mad by anybody's calculation, but nobody was diplomatically prepared to tell him so, to ignore the major plan from the south, going up their own valley, and instead do a French landing into the massif saint In the end, that's what the Vercors was sacrificed for. In the end, the resources that could have gone in to save the Vercors at the last minute were held in uh, were held in the Bairns to use on the on de Gaulle's plan. And the Allies' failure to tell him this wasn't going to be acceptable, I think, is also one of the reasons why the Vercors was abandoned in the end. But I can't blame de Gaulle. He was trying to do something enormous. He was trying to um, <clears throat> restore the greatness of France when France could bring nothing to the table. She'd been shamefully defeated. She had no resources to put on the table. She had nothing to bargain with. She had no troops. She wasn't even going to play a big part in her own liberation. De Gaulle's magic, nevertheless, with nothing in his hand, getting France restored to be a great power after the war was extraordinary, and one of the reasons he got that was because he was prepared to think big, and did. I was going to
3: ask you, actually, what your take on his character and his personality was.
1: Oh, dreadful. (laughs) I I mean, I think de Gaulle must have been a very unlike Lord Churchill, Um, regarded him as a great man but thought he was very irksome, I thought he was pompous, arrogant, but in many ways... Somebody once referred to him as the last great Frenchman, and I agree with that. Um... You would, not have, you would not have wanted to have de Gaulle as a colleague. You would have been bored to death with him about having dinner because you'd have had no other voice but your own, but his. But as a strategist, as a man, I mean, it, it, with nothing in his hand, with nothing in his hand, he took on the most powerful man on earth, President Roosevelt, um, who preferred Giraud, the alternative, who wanted to have an allied military government, and on every front he won, with nothing. That's not bad.
3: Kind of moving ahead to um, the events later that year, you write that the 15th of June was a day of tragedy and loss, while the 16th of June was one of farce and stupidity. Um, <laughs> for people who might not know, what, what took place on those those two days?
1: 15th of June is the first German attempt, successful, after three attempts, to break through the perimeter of the Verkort Plateau and the Battle of Saint-Nizier. It was always the Verkhoel's most vulnerable part point. And I don't think the Verkhoel commander yet defended it to the uttermost. And I think he was right not to, because there was a better line of defence further back. So it was the first time the Germans said, look, we're serious about this, guys. We're going to take you out. Um, they came in with heavy artillery and troops. They were robust for the first two attempts. And they drove them. The, so that gave them a footing on on the plateau itself. It was, I think an inevitable operation, an inevitable setback for um, the French. Um, I think they did actually rather well. I think they caused the Germans much more havoc than than, um, than the Germans expected, and the Germans are quite nervous after that. So a day of loss, loss of Nizier, loss of the first to be killed to, the, to German troops, loss of a large portion of the northern part of the plateau. Um, but I don't think there's anything shameful about that. The next day, I mean, the next day, can you imagine it? There is a a ludicrous, almost pantomime farce, where the civil head of the Veracruz is going down off the plateau to have a meeting, and is stopped by some sentries who belong to one of the of Jez, one of the units um, most opposed to the civilians. He is arrested and taken away to be questioned. At which stage, all the civil Maciasar rose up and uh, rush off to arrest the, the the commander. So after this day in which they had to fight the Germans on a united front um, and did quite well they then started fighting each other it was a day of complete farce and stupidity mm. and i outlines, i think very clearly the essential internal rift within the vehicle
3: mm. who do you see as being culpable for the events of that day do you think it's just one of those long standing things that came to a head or is it there... it
1: was undoubtedly a long standing thing there was a lot of tension The military trying to recreate the army of France in the middle of the Vercors, you know, Sam brown belt, shiny shoes, orderlies looking after the officers, um, all the regiments with their regimental standards, the scruffy, dirty Makisar in their Makisar uniforms who'd been struggling over the mountains and done most of the fighting. There was an inevitable resistance, one on the other hand religious um, uh, and uh, and right-wing, the other uh, definitely left-wing and very revolutionary. This was there. There were all sorts of talks about the Allied parachute drops that came in also um, dropped in chocolate, Uh, but the army got all the chocolate and the Macky got none. There was a big struggle about uniforms. They were in tattered clothes. Uniforms were dropped, but the head of the army said he wasn't prepared to have French soldiers wearing foreign uniforms. Completely ridiculous. Um, So there's a lot of internal tension. Um, But I'll tell you who I blame for it. I mean, I think, by and large, Chavon acted with wisdom and was perfectly capable of getting on with reasonable military people. I think J. Nancy J. A a remarkable man in many ways, more out of the 18th century than the 20th. Much more at home with, um, um, with um, the, 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 the Four Musketeers um, as a member of that. But pompous, um, not very good strategic thinker, uh, I blame him chiefly for this. Okay, yeah.
3: Moving ahead briefly, um, well not briefly I suppose, but um, to try and do justice to the events of July 1944, um, could you talk through, I suppose, briefly the German operation and what unfolded during, during those days?
1: The German, there were, there were basically three full dress rehearsals for the German operation. Um, there were three previous operations because the idea of having fortresses, redoubts, redoubts in the French phrase, um, was an idea that had been developed through 1943 and into 1944. The first of them was on the plateau close to Geneva called the Gliere Plateau. Um, and the second of them um, was in a place called Barcelonnette, just after D-Day. And the third of them was on the Montmoucher in the Massif Central. In all of these places after D-Day, the French Gliere before, but in all of these places, the French rose, sought to have a static defense of a fixed fortress type operation. The Germans came in. Um, with more troops than people thought they could muster, um, and obliterated them. And their technique for obliterating them was surround, attack, annihilate, destroy. First of all, you take the fortress, you think it's a fortress, you turn it into a prison by putting a cordon around it, then you attack it, then you kill everybody who's there, who is in the Makisar, and then you uh, a scorched-earth policy, you destroy everything so it can't be used again. We saw this three dress rehearsals take place, and yet people still continued with the Verkhoor. Mm. I think because they thought the Verkhoor was too big to be surrounded, that inevitably people could get away. Mm. But um, the German general, Fram, um, clearly told in advance of D-Day, for all sorts of understandable reasons, that this was going to be a point of Allied attack, mustered the troops, threw a cordon around it, and then he came in with four columns that were going to uh, take out of our cause, simultaneously attacking from four different directions so that um, the French couldn't respond to a single threat. One came in with armour from the south over the southern coals. One came in largely with some armour, but from the north, that had already been captured at Saint-Nizier. One came when no one expected them to come, the wonderful gubiux of the German Alpine troops um, came straight up the the steepest mountain over the passes um, and fought battles on the passes to get through. And then the surprise one came in by gliders. I think originally they were planning parachutists as well, but landed in the middle by gliders. Uh, And it was a four-pronged assault uh, to take place simultaneously on the 21st of July.
3: Do you think there's anything that the fighters could have done to off this mass attack I mean was there a failure
1: no of... uh, no I think there was a failure it's Jays' failure again um, I think that the most vulnerable part of this because the weather suddenly clamped down um, at midday on the 21st of July and that means that the first wave of German troops only 200 got in onto the of the ground in Vasio in the center of the plateau then the weather clamped down they were now very isolated they couldn't support each other and they were in four positions. Um, and they were very vulnerable to counterattack. Jae counterattacked them that night. If they had got rid of that, I think they'd have had a much better job at protecting the rim. Um, but Jae, um, tragically and a terrible military error, decided instead of the Germans had made the mistake of dispersing their forces and couldn't get their reinforcements in. Jae replicated this, that, that mistake by dispersing his attack yeah. instead of concentrating his forces on one. Getting rid of that and then dealing with the others, he, he, he dispersed his attack. And that meant that each of the positions was able to sustain uh, the attacks that night. Um, the weather was terrible. The makisar were untrained, lightly armed. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why well, they didn't succeed. But the strategic reason, which would have given them a better chance, was because Zey didn't split. He split his forces rather than concentrated.
3: To what extent can we see the German offensive as being surprising by how, how kind of massive it was?
1: It shouldn't have been surprising. You know, we had arguably four dress rehearsals. We had three very clear dress rehearsals. The whole idea, I mean, that somebody thought Rudites would be a good idea is pretty bizarre in my view because guerrilla warfare, the essence of it is movement, not static defence. However, I can understand why they did. But to have tried it three times and... I mean, the the reason why they thought they could get away with redouts was because they didn't think the Germans could muster the forces, because they didn't think the Germans had the will to use it, and because they thought the French was were up to static defensive battles. Having on three occasions previously been shown that each of those premises were false, to continue with the Vercourt was, in my view, stupidity of a very high order indeed. The treatment
3: of the people of the Vercourt over the next three weeks is, is horrific. Do we get a sense of the attitude of the average German soldiers to this treatment? Do you think it's something they went along with? Were they,
1: I mean... I think to start with, when the Germans first came in 1941-42, particularly 42 and the 42 and 43, I think France was a cushy number for them. I think this was the land of love. I think that um, the French were not... uh, the resistance was very small. (coughs) They were, um, in comparison to the Eastern Front, living in the lap of luxury. Um, And although the resistance was getting stronger, they weren't hated. By 1944, they'd conducted several operations. The STO had come. They had been guilty of um, uh, war crimes. They were roundly hated, and the resistance was much, much, much more effective. So I think there was a hardness. Um, There was also, of course, the question that the French themselves had been winning victories and killing Germans. So I think there was a hardness, a sense of revenge. Um, yes, that I think what definitely was there. They'd also become inured. There's quite a, lot of, quite a lot of evidence that the early German troops did not like the kind of, um, the kind of atrocities that they were told to commit by the Gestapo, basically. Um, but towards the end, I don't think that was the case. So they went in with a mood of, um, of revenge, I think, almost desperation. Mm-hmm. What I think separates the horrors, however, is this. Um, it is extraordinary the extent to which each of the commanders, the main German commanders, had actually had the first part of their war on the Eastern Front, had come in from um, fighting the Partisans on the Eastern Front. That's true of three, two of the column commanders, um, and it's certainly true of Flam, the commander himself. It's also true of the head of the Gestapo, Werner Knab, and I think they quite deliberately imported the tactics that they used on the Eastern Front and, by the way, in Bosnia, in the Yugoslavia, into France. And to add to that, there were the what the French called the Mongols, the Eastern troops, the Azerbaijanis, the Uzbeks, who were specialists in sadistic forms of killing. These had been commonly used... Um, Perfectly common, not unusual at all on the Eastern Front, but by and large not used in Western Europe. And so I think this is the first occasion in which um, the techniques, the horrors, the atrocities, which had been established as practice in the Eastern Front, were incorporated um, in and, and were, were, were utilised um, in, in, in Western Europe. And... Um, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we, we make an excuse for the Germans um, with the Eastern troops because I'm not sure they were responsible for all the horrors. Um, even if they were, there are very reliable stories of the foul killing being done by the Eastern troops taking place in front of German officers who were their commanders while eating their lunch, uh, those kind of things. So I think what you see here for the very first time in Western Europe is what had been absolutely common, commonplace on the Eastern Front.
3: What was the thing that surprised you the most during your research? Um,
1: I'll tell you what surprised me because, in fact, I had several people write to me when I, who know the story well, um, when I decided, I told them what the, the story, the, the title of the book was, and I said, I'm going to call it The Victory. And they said, but it wasn't a victory, it was a complete disaster. What surprised me is that what everybody saw as a victory, as a disaster, as a defeat. Actually, it wasn't. It was a victory. Um, It was an extraordinary victory, a victory built on individual courage and leadership. Um, Because when the Makizar were left to do what they do best, go into the forest, they survived, they came back, they helped to drive the Germans out, and they were preserved, and all the Germans' aims had failed. So what surprised me was that all of France has been talking about this as one of our glorious disasters. Actually, it isn't. Yeah. It's, a, it's a glorious victory, albeit an extreme, extremely cruel one, and one in many ways infected with folly. Yeah. But nevertheless, in the end, the winners in this were not the Germans, they were the French. The young man in the white shirt in the end prevailed. That really surprised me and
2: inspired me, I have to say. That was Paddy Ashdown. The Cruel Victory, The French Resistance, D-Day and The Battle for the Vecor is out now, published by William Collins. Paddy Ashdown will also be talking at this year's History Weekend Festival to be held in the historic town of Malmesbury from the 16th to the 19th of October. We've still got tickets available for many of the talks, including Paddy's, so please do get your tickets quickly before they sell out. You can find out more details and book at historyweekend.com. And if you'd like to read more from Matt and Paddy, then you can do so in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale this week. It is a First World War special edition, with articles about many different aspects of that conflict, as well as on Carmen, Tudor cleanliness and plenty more. You can pick up a copy at all good newsagents and, of course, as a digital edition. And now we have a short advertisement
4: break. Kaiser Wilhelm II is one of the most fascinating figures in European history, ruling imperial Germany from his accession in 1888 to his enforced abdication at the end of the First World War. In his new book, Wilhelm II, A Concise Life, John Rawl provides an accessible survey of his award-winning three-volume biography of the Kaiser and his reign. The book sheds new light on Wilhelm's troubled youth, his involvement in social and political scandals, and his growing thirst for glory, which provided the impetus for a breathtaking long-term goal, the transformation of the German Reich into one of the foremost powers in the world. The book examines the crucial role played by Wilhelm in the policies that led to war in 1914, and it describes the rabid anti-Semitism he developed in exile, as well as his efforts to regain power. Wilhelm II, A Concise Life, is available to order now. Price $16.99.
3: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about
2: Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFadden.
5: Michael Gove was this week replaced as Education Secretary in Prime Minister David Cameron's wide-ranging Cabinet reshuffle. Gove, who had been criticised by some history teachers, was moved to Chief Whip, replaced in his education role by Women's Minister Nicky Morgan. The Historical Association, which supports history teachers and departments in both secondary and primary schools, said it looks forward to meeting the new Education Secretary. In a statement, the body said, It has been an interesting four years with Michael Gove in charge of education, and on the positive side, it has been good to have a Secretary of State for Education take a serious interest in history and history in schools. However, not all of Mr Gove's views have delighted the history community. To read more about this story, visit historyextra.com. In other news, the Imperial War Museum London is due to reopen this weekend following a multi-million pound transformation with new displays to mark the centenary of the First World War. At the new permanent First World War galleries, visitors can learn how the war started and why it continued and, through the lives of those who experienced it, come to understand the global impact of the conflict. More than 1,300 objects, including weapons, uniforms, diaries, letters and souvenirs, will be on display in the 14 chapters of the galleries. Meanwhile, famous satirical magazine Punch is now available to browse online. The complete run of Punch from 1841 to 1992 has been uploaded to a fully searchable digital archive. Highlights include the comic works of William Thackeray, full-page political cartoons by Winnie the Pooh artist E. H. Shepard and Punch's famous parliamentary sketches. Users can search the archive or quickly browse an issue before zooming in or cropping images that can then be saved, printed or shared via email. The archive also boasts commissioned essays by scholars that provide social and historical context. To find out more about the archive and to view 10 amazing Punch sketches visit historyextra.com.
2: Thank you, Emma. During the 1930s, Hastings and St Leonard's on the south coast of England became a mecca for sun worshippers seeking a fashionable but thrifty summer holiday. Our Features Editor, Charlotte Hodgman, travelled to Hastings to meet the historian Catherine Ferry and find out how the town coped with the influx of tourists as Britain experienced a leisure revolution.
0: So Catherine we've um, come down to Hastings today um, to talk about Hastings in the interwar period kind of a period when people were taking more seaside holidays and things like that and tell me a little bit about what Hastings looked like um, during this this time well, in the 1920s, it was kind of a, a, a town in decline, really, and um, probably the, the seafront that we can see from, from the beach where we're sitting. Um, there were lots of to let signs, for sale signs. It was a bit sort of down on its luck. But then, in 1926, Hastings got a new borough surveyor who really transformed the look of the town. So, what we see with the, the sea wall here and the, the, the concrete distinction between land and sea here, mm. um, that was that was what happened in the 1930s. The, the road was brought forwards by quite some degree um, and um, a lot of attractions were sort of built into that to make Hastings a much more modern, up-to-date resort. And, and it was absolutely crucial because seaside business was booming. Mm. Um, there was a great market, a great domestic holiday market. So In 1938, we have the Holidays with Pay Act where legislation is actually allowing people paid leisure time for the first time ever. But even before that, employers had cottoned on to the fact that it was good for their workers to have some some annual leave and so that the the annual seaside holiday was really becoming the norm for a lot of people by the end of the decade by 1939 probably some 15 million people Gosh. could actually take uh, expect to take a, an annual holiday and they would expect to take it at the seaside and, and what did they expect from that holiday when they got here what would they be looking to, to do and see well the kind of the things that we would want to do now I suppose mm-hmm. the the beach and um you know Sunshine in the 30s, particularly sunshine, just before they knew about skin cancer and everything, sunshine was the new kind of panacea. Um, you think of that 30s period with outdoors. Um, It's a a time when outdoors activities are really coming to the fore. It's a new leisure. They actually talk about it as the new leisure of going hiking, you know, being outside in holiday camps, mass health and fitness kind of um, routines on the beach, people doing... uh, (laughs) <laughs> uh, early forms of gymnastics and that kind of thing um, really sunshine is absolutely crucial and so you, so all these resorts had to update themselves with sunbathing facilities so um, you get kind of sunbathing decks on the promenades here There are sun trap shelters. Mm. Um, We've just seen them um, along by St. Leonard's. And um, the fantastic Marine Court, great big apartment block, had a sun um, terrace on its rooftop. Um, So sunshine is absolutely key to what people want. And it's it's partly sort of inspired by this new aspirational idea of taking the holiday that um, people know about they've seen in the movies and the sort of glamour of the south of France, the Riviera Yeah. people ordinary women wearing the fashion of the time was for beach pyjamas sort of wide legged trousers (laughs) and and loose fitting tops that um, sort of Parisian socialites might wear at Juan les pins on the Riviera but they would come to Hastings and wear them and and feel as if they were glamorous for that for that that short seaside break and um, so even though our British summertime is not, doesn't sort of guarantee sunshine, any sunshine that they had had to be absolutely capitalised upon. OK. And you mentioned um, the the borough architect yeah. um, Sydney Little. Um, that we were talking it earlier. So, were the changes that he made to Hastings were that were they designed to to get more people here? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, if you think 15 million people can now take a holiday, mm. and they could go anywhere because the whole point about this period as well, there's there's increasing affluence allowing people to go on holiday. But they they lots of them have now got cars. Yeah. And that's a huge sea change because it's not just a question of going to your local resort, once you've got a car you can go wherever you want and you don't have to stay if you don't like it, so from the resort's point of view that's a real game changer because they actually have to make sure that what they offer is better than the place down the road yeah. so what Sydney Little does here is is hugely transformative and it's really about bringing the resort up to date just down the road you've got Bex Hill where they've in 1935 they opened the Delaware Pavilion um, Brighton's got all its amenities and is updating with something like the the iconic embassy court in a very modernist style and what Sydney Little does here is transforms the entire promenade into this kind of sun worshippers dream Mm. and then he adds a Lido as well which is you know all resorts with any pretensions they must have a a, a Lido it's the phenomenal you'd think that um you've got this amazing resource of the sea here right next to us so why would you build a Lido but um But a hun- between 1930 and 1939, 180 lidos were built up and down the country, lots of them at seaside places. And, and you had to have one because it wasn't just about swimming, it was mm. about the sunbathing, it was seeing and being seen. Um was so a status thing as oh, much as anything. Completely, yeah, mm. and completely. And, and crucial that you spend quite a lot of money on them because right. in the PR terms of the time, the money is definitely a factor in the guidebooks, etc. It tells you exactly how much is spent on all these things. So, for example, Blackpool's open-air bars, opened in 1923. They spent £80,000 on it. You think of the size of Blackpool as a mm. resort and the number of people that are going there. Well, Hastings, in 1931, they spent £60,000 on their Lido. And they've only ever been a kind of medium-sized resort, but they really are trying very yeah. hard to... to um, raise their profile and and really attract a different type of visitor and there's still a phenomenal amount of of um architecture that that sitting little did actually design it's still here today um most of it concrete yes. um, <laughs> what, why concrete well concrete was the material of the age really mm. um and it lends. It's all part of the modernist aesthetic coming in from Europe, and you can get very clean lines to it. And, and it's, I suppose, it's the break with tradition, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's it's everything that the the previous generation was not. If you yeah. think of the Victorians with their red brick, um, yes, and before that Georgian stucco, and then you have 1930s. Concrete And that that is completely the material of the era. Concrete and sunshine, you know, that sort of (laughs) encapsulates it. And we were saying earlier that it does have a more of a 60s feel to it. So you were saying that, you know, it was quite ahead of its time, some of the things that he designed. I think so, yeah. I mean, the Lido had, it was just kind of concrete block, no ornamentation, Mm. um, almost sort of brutalist in the way it was dealt with. Very, very very much embracing the, the concrete as a material, what it can do in a way that people would go on to do after the yeah. Second World War. Um, yeah. and, you, and you see, that he was a very clever man, mm. Sidney Little, the car parks that he designed um, underground here, which were in fact the, the first in the world built under civic auspices, they, they have this sort of Amazing cinematic quality because there's these concrete it's all concrete again obviously <laughs> the concrete arches as they recede into the distance and you're standing in this it's a car park and yet yeah. you look you, it's kind of like being in an Isha print or you know that kind of 1930s cinema element of it there's something yeah. um Something he he did something really quite clever with concrete here, and and as you say, you can come and see it, yeah, yeah, even the even the car parks you know well I any parts in the car park and the I did see, <laughs> it's very functional all of this yeah. that's that's the whole point you know the, the double decker promenade where we've been yeah. um it works because if the rain comes, you can go on the lower promenade and you're sheltered from the rain and um if it's a sunny day, you've got the wonderful upper promenade. You can walk along, and it, yeah. it connects Hastings and St Leonard's, as it has done for what, eighty odd years. So. And, and how were his designs received by the people of Hastings and just generally? Um, well, I think Hastings knew that they were that they that they needed to do something quite dramatic mm. to um, update their their town. And actually, the, the people of Hastings were. Um, campaigning for a Lido before one was built. So I think they had a sense, the people that they, this needed to be done I'm not really sure quite how they reacted to the concrete. One one guidebook um, of the late 20s talked about the White Rock Pavilion here which was opened in 1927 as an sort of entertainment venue and that um, that's in a kind of slightly Italian style with pavilions it's very much of the 1920s it's attractive building but it's Mm. not it's not the Delaware pavilion it's not eye-catching it's not modernist and yet this guidebook talked about it as being ultra modern um, and demonstrating the courage of the borough and then you see what Sydney Little did with concrete I mean that was ultra ultra modern And, and it really must have been if you think what what came beforehand? We've we've had the 60s in between, so mm. we're kind of we we know about concrete, um, what it can do, you know, in all its forms. But coming from the, the 20s and the Victorian past, it must have been such a huge change for people to see all this happening on their on yeah. their seafront, um, and that was that was part of the appeal, I suppose, for the holiday makers because it was actually saying this is an up to date resort. This is this is something really different that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, what was um, Sydney Little's um, background? He was born in eighteen eighty five in Carlisle and came from an engineering family right. background, um, and he. Before coming to Hastings in 1926, he's worked as a deputy borough engineer in Ipswich. And Hastings was his kind of dream job, really, because um, they just gave him free reign to do all these projects. Because the town was in such a state, the roads were terrible, the Mm. sanitation was awful. You know, it got to the point where they had to invest. And, you know, they spent some three million pounds on transforming the, the town, and that's, it. that's in 30s money. Oh, wow. I mean, that was okay. really huge sums of money. And did he go on to do other things after Hastings, other places? Um, I believe um, during the war he was involved with the Mulberry Harbours. Um, I guess, for the concrete, yeah I mean, yes. all the, that experience he yeah. had of, of concrete, but this, this is his finest achievement the the 30 's period um, in Hastings and St. Leonard. I, I suppose this was kind of interrupted by by another war, mm. um, did things change after that at all in terms of people taking holidays and things like that, yeah, I think expectations that you would go to the seaside your holiday that certainly changed although certainly in in terms of visitor numbers the immediate post-war period is when you get the real heyday because people can't afford to go anywhere else but then things start to change. In the 30s a lot of towns and resorts have huge capital sums to invest after the second world war they simply don't so the kind of money that Sydney Little could play with here during the interwar period that had all dried up and so seaside resorts were sort of trading on their past glories a bit and that didn't matter in the early 50s when people didn't have much option but when in the 60s people could start to afford to go abroad the architecture and the facilities from the pre-war period beginning to look a bit shabby and a bit tired Mm. and resorts didn't have the the money to to really upgrade in the way that they might have done Um, people were going in search of more reliable sunshine and, and going on package deals. So, yeah, after the war, it did change. So was travelling abroad not really an option during this period? Did people t- did um, do that? People did. Wealthy people did. Yeah. Absolutely, they did. Um, and, and that was part of the uh, the appeal of that whole idea of, you know, pretending you're on the French Riviera or go to Torquay and go to the, the British Riviera um, because people with money, fashionable people, could afford to go abroad yeah. and, and you just had to come to Hastings and pretend that you were... Um, <laughs> (laughs) Um, um, abroad, but um, it was a much more limited section of the population that could afford to do so in that time um, but somewhere like Marine Court where we've been looking at and there are other examples of buildings that mirror the sort of ocean liner aesthetic. Mm. Marine Court here is this whopping great apartment building it's 14 stories high when it was built it was the largest residential development in the country Wow! Um, it was talked about as a skyscraper not, <laughs> obviously it's not, it was the same period that the Empire State Building was going up so it's a completely different yeah. um, thing really but um, at the time it was something very novel and different and it was its design was based on the Queen Mary ocean liner which um, launched in 1936 uh, Marine Court in St Leonard's opened in 1937 okay so it it's absolutely saying you can come for a cruise on land come (laughs) and stay in this building and there were a lot of instances of this cruising was deeply fashionable right deeply expensive so how do you get around that well you offer ordinary people this sort of vision of what it might be like to be on a cruise ship holiday camps did it you could go and Play deck games, mm. um, you play quoits uh, at, at the holiday camp in a building that was designed to look a bit like an ocean liner. Some of them had funnels on and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, the um, casino, the entrance building to Blackpool Pleasure Beach, is one very modernist um, example yeah. uh, of that kind of ocean liner aesthetic as well. And Marine Court, you know, in its profile, does oh. look like a ship, doesn't it? It does, mm. it completely, uh, it's locally nicknamed the ship. Yeah. And it was at the time described as the, the liner on land. And actually in 1937, as part of the Hastings Carnival, Cunard White Star Line lent the um, developers a 24-foot-long model of the Queen Mary to actually display in Marine Court, so you could kind of look at the similarities. And, and you know, if you hadn't worked it out already, yeah. um, you could see how very similar these these things were. Oh, Okay. And would people sort of do? Would they sort of stay in this area? Would it, was it all about being in Hastings and, and by the sea? Would they travel and do other well things? Thanks, thanks to the growth of um, uh, car ownership, people could travel and do more things mm. um, in a way that they wouldn't have been able to before and that's why we're focusing on um, one of the car parks here as well because cars seaside traffic jams were already yeah. coming becoming a real problem I mean, you think of them as kind of a modern era thing and and that's not true at all it was in the 1930s that traffic jams to the seaside first came about and and the the Figures are astonishing. In um, 1914, there are 140,000 vehicles on the road. By 1939, there's 3 million. Gosh, that's huge. That's huge. huge. Yeah. And 2 million, of the, 2 million of those are private cars. And you think on a summer weekend, those cars are heading to the seaside it's not just about the traffic jams to get there what what do you do with them all when when you arrive you know you're talking about essentially victorian resorts with roads that were made for horses and carriages not cars and so um sydney little built um in hastings and st three underground car parks that could accommodate eventually 1,200 vehicles. Um, And and that was a... You know, that that made the national press. That was a a major, major thing because the motor car in the interwar years was certainly a status symbol, but something that, you know, you could not avoid. It must have been astonishing, that rapid change of... You know, if you're a person growing up in that period, you know, you before the first world war you see these vehicles intermittently and then then come the second world war they're just everywhere it must have been quite an astonishing thing to 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 be part of really and are there other sort of seaside resorts um in britain that had the same sort of level of change that Hastings went through during this period. There are landmark buildings at lots of other resorts that you can pick out. And you can say somewhere like the Midland Hotel in Morecambe, for example, Mm. um, is a modernist icon. Um, The the Delaware Pavilion at at Bexhill is the same funnily enough, if there had been the finances, Bexhill would have been completely transformed beyond the pavilion. There were plans Mm. to have an entertainment centre, blocks of flats along the promenade, get rid of all the Edwardian stuff and and turn it into this modern centre. The the drawings exist, I think, still. Um, But they never did it at Hastings they actually they put their money where their mouth was and um, the whole promenade was transformed so I I think I think it is unique in that actually yeah I mean and I couldn't believe how much there is still to see I mean almost everywhere you walk and look from bus shelters to you know to little nooks and crannies and little sort of benches built into concrete and mm. things like that. It's, you know, it's everywhere you look, there's, um, there's sort of evidence of this period, isn't there? Yeah, and it's, it's elegantly done as well. Mm. I mean, you talk about the concrete and you, people might think, well, that doesn't sound terribly... Enticing, but but it, it's done with great panache here. I think. Yeah. I think Sydney Little was a very clever man, and the bottle alley that we oh, looked at earlier—that's fantastic. Yeah, there's a double-decker promenade, and um, we were saying that you could shelter um, on the lower deck, and that the the rear wall of that is um, studded with bottle glass, and apparently Sydney Little came across all these. Old unwanted bottles at the rubbish tip and salvaged them all. Mm. It's sort of 1930s upcycling, you know. (laughs) Um, And and they they're set into plaster on this back wall, and they just transform it from being a walkway into something Mm, quite special. Yeah, Mm. absolutely, yeah. And um, where would people have stayed when they, you mentioned holiday camps and things like mm. that, were, were they was, sighted by the seaside? Holiday camps tended to be sighted by the seaside, yeah, um, for the reason that, you know, the seaside is where you go on holiday. That's yeah. been a traditional um, thing to do. But somewhere like Hastings, you'd probably still expect to stay in a sort of boarding house, um, that kind of relatively old-fashioned arrangement. Um, B&Bs didn't really come in till after the Second World War, right. and um, boarding houses were quite a tricky thing to negotiate they, they had bad reputation of the the landlady um who locked you out after breakfast yeah. and let you in for your um meal times and then you know if it's raining it doesn't matter you don't have a key you you're chucked out yeah and so that's why kind of having these sort of shelters on the promenade and and places to relax and sit down that's important if mm. you don't have a base yeah you know like we expect to do now come and go as you please that that just wasn't the norm that wasn't how you did it Um, But the problem in the interwar period for hoteliers and and landladies was that because of the motor car, people didn't have to stay here. They could go elsewhere. And so there was um, there's the beginning of the transformation of the sort of um, hospitality industry, really, that um, towards shorter stays, I suppose. Yeah, yeah and would people come down for sort of weekend trips or would people have like the, the one summer holiday every year um yeah they didn't have lots of holidays no. like we could expect to now but i think if there were um sunny weekends you'd, people would be leaving the city They'd and follow the sun and, absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah um and in the past that would have been on a on a train going on a cheap excursion maybe um and in the 30s, of course, it's not just um, motor cars, it's um, motor coaches as well yeah. allowed more people the opportunity to go to the seaside and to places that they couldn't have done before. You, if you're relying on a railway, you have to go where the train takes you, yeah. but a, a coach or a car, you can go any manner of places. So so the, the seaside tourism industry is really, really expanding. And, and Resorts have to invest in order to get those important visitors and to try and keep them, you know, once yeah. they're here. Yeah. Uh, to, to stop them turning around and going down the road to the next place. Yeah.
2: That was Catherine Ferry. You can read her feature on the British holiday boom in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is out now. And Catherine's forthcoming book, Bungalows, will be published in August by Shire Books. Okay, that is almost all for this week. Do please get in touch with your thoughts about this podcast on podcast historyextra.com and we will do our best to read out some of your messages in the future. One listener who contacted us recently was Luke McCallin. Luke says, I've been meaning to write for you for a long time to express my appreciation and enjoyment of your podcast, which is a weekly treat on my commute. I'm constantly surprised by the things I learn most recently about English gardens, and there's rarely a dull moment to be had. Having prevaricated endlessly on writing to you, it was your recent podcasts on Gavrilo Princip and by Adam Tooze on the legacy of the First World War, which really convinced me that now was the time. I myself lived and worked in Bosnia for many years, and I found Mr Butcher's remarks about that country and about Mr Princip to be very interesting as well as Mr Toose's analysis of the 1930s, and in particular his vignettes about the major personalities of the Versailles conference were insightful and trenchant. Thank you for that, Luke. And if you've missed either of those episodes, then they are still available to download from our website and numerous podcast services. The Adam Toose interview was broadcast on the 12th of June, and Tim Butcher's discussion of Gavrilo Princip appeared on the 22nd of May, both this year. Please do keep your thoughts coming in on email and also social media. On Twitter we are at History Extra and on Facebook we're also History Extra. And do make sure to check out our website historyextra.com for the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and hundreds of episodes of this podcast which go back to 2007. Next week we'll be discussing Richard III with Chris Skidmore while Pamela Hartshawn will be investigating Tudor filth. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Hastings and in Somerset and produced by Jack Fletcher.